It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 259 for September 11th, 2011. Recorded September 9th. Windows 8 is coming, and the changes are going to be enormous. The user interface gets a complete makeover, and there's a good chance that a lot of people will dislike it without even giving it a chance. Microsoft software engineer and blogger Steven Sanofsky, who also just happens to head the project, has written about something that seems trivial, basic file management, you know, copy, move, rename, delete, all that kind of stuff. Fundamental, yes, but not really trivial. When you're using a computer, you'll almost always be working with files. Improvements at this level affect every application on the computer. Sanofsky says that usability studies confirm there are some cluttered and confusing parts of the Windows 7 copy experience. This is particularly true, he says, when people need to deal with files and folders that have the same file names in what we call file name collisions. And surprisingly, he says more than 5% of simple file copy jobs fail to complete for various reasons. Windows Explorer is not, and never has been, an application that deals effectively with high-volume copy operations. I use an application called TerraCopy to help with large copy jobs. This is one of the top three third-party file management tools. The other two are FastCopy and Copy Handler. But only a few users know about these utilities. Microsoft's telemetry tools show that these applications are installed on about one-half of 1% of Windows 7 computers. If you ever need to copy large numbers of files and you're frustrated by the amount of time it takes, check out one of the three free for home use utility programs, TerraCopy, FastCopy, and Copy Handler. Even under Windows 8, these additional utility applications will be very helpful. You'll find links to all three of them from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And one word of caution, FastCopy has what I consider to be the most confusing interface of the three. TerraCopy's interface is pretty clean, and it also installs itself as a context handler. So when you click the right mouse button, it'll pop up. Sanofsky says that Microsoft isn't trying to match the feature sets of these add-ons. We expect that there will be a vibrant market for third-party add-ons for a long time, he says. Our focus is on improving the experience of the person who is doing high-volume copy work with Explorer today, who would like more control, more insight into what's going on while copying, and a cleaner, more streamlined experience. For example, have you ever started a second copy job before the first job completed? Well, you then had two file copy dialogues on the screen. No relationship at all between the two. If you do that in Windows 8, you'll see two progress bars on the same dialog box. And what if, for example, your daughter needs to leave soon and you want the copy job that involves her DVD to finish before the copy job that involves the USB memory stick with pictures from your vacation? Easy. Just pause the vacation job. In Windows 8, users will be able to pause, resume, and stop each copy operation currently underway and to do so separately. 
Windows 8 will add a detailed view with a real-time throughput graph, so each copy job will show the speed of data transfer, the transfer rate trend, and how much data is left to transfer. While this is not designed for benchmarking, in many cases it can at least provide a quick and easy way to assess what's going on for a particular job. The current file collision dialog is better than anything Microsoft has offered before, but it's still confusing. You'll find an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Windows 8 will present all file collisions in a single dialog. So then you make your selections and proceed, instead of being bothered time after time after time. And anyone who has ever copied a file probably has seen an estimated completion time dialog that said perhaps the job would take 59 days, uh, but then recalculated and decided it would be 30 days, then 24 hours, and a few seconds later, just 40 seconds. There are good reasons for the inaccuracy. How much network bandwidth will be available for the length of the copy job, for example? Will your antivirus software spin up and start scanning files? Will another application need access to the hard drive? Will the user start another copy job? All of those things. But still, it's hard to reconcile the quick changes from many weeks to just a few seconds. Sanofsky says that rather than invest a lot of time coming up with a low-confidence estimate that would be only slightly improved over the current one, in Windows 8, Microsoft's software engineers focused on presenting the information that Microsoft is confident about in a useful and compelling way. This, he says, makes the most reliable information we have available to you so that you can make more informed decisions. Once upon a time, Kodak made a slide projector, and they called it a carousel. It was invented by Louis Misuraka, who came to the United States from Italy when he was a child. For inventing the carousel, Misuraka earned no royalties. Kodak paid him a one-time fee, and it's said that he used the money to take his family on a trip to Italy. Carousel projectors used a circular tray that held 80 or 140 35mm slides. Kodak discontinued projectors in 2004, but now Adobe has resurrected the name for a new online service. Carousel attempts to address the difficulty of sharing images among users who have disparate computing devices. Currently it's available only to users of Apple iPads, iPhones, and Mac computers, but it will be available for Windows computers and for Android phones in 2012. It also supports only JPEG images currently, but support for RAW images is under consideration for a future version of the application. Those who shoot only RAW images must convert the images to JPEG before sharing them via Carousel. So it's probably fair to consider this version 1.0 product a good proof of concept but until it's available for Windows and Android users, and until it can deal seamlessly with raw images, it doesn't seem like much of a game changer for photo sharing. Those who shoot raw images will still have to convert them to JPEG format and upload them. Changes made to the JPEG images will not be reported back to the raw files. But, nonetheless, it's a good and ambitious start. Carousel's intent is to make all photos available to all users on all devices. 
Now, all might be a bit of an overstatement. Those who sign up for the program at $60 a year or $6 a month will have five carousels. Each carousel may be shared with up to five people. Any given carousel can contain any number of images, though. Adobe's intent with this new application is to allow users to share, browse, and adjust photos on all supported devices. Unfortunately, those devices are, for now, just Mac computers and applications that run iOS, which would be iPad and the iPhone. Carousel offers looks that can reasonably be thought of as filters, but users also have access to more precise controls, such as automatic white balance, manual white balance, highlight and shadow controls, contrast, clarity, and vibrance. As with Adobe's Lightroom product, all changes are non-destructive. Now, what that means is that modifications are stored in a description file, and the user can always revert to the original JPEG image. Carousel promises to be an application that will change, once again, how we use and share photography, even more so when it's available for Windows computers, Android devices, and when it handles raw files. A recent discussion of email turned to spam and rejected messages. They are closely related subjects. The discussion covered several useful topics, and I asked a couple of the participants for their permission to use their words. One participant, who I'll call Donna, because that's her name, said, and I quote, Even with our own domains, aren't we still somewhat at the mercy of the hosts? But yes, nothing is foolproof. Even the U.S. Postal Service occasionally delays, damages, or loses some messages. Donna again. My uncle has his own domain. I sent email to uncle at his domain from my primary address when it went through Bluehost before I moved it to Google Apps, as well as from several of my Gmail addresses. And it gets bounced back to me sometimes with various and seemingly random explanations for why it happened. Well, here's one reason. Bluehost is a shared hosting service. It's the one I use. They host at least tens of thousands of domains, probably hundreds of thousands by now. My domain, TechBiter, lives at the IP address 69.89.31.245, and at least 174 other domains share that IP address. If you take into account subdomains, an example would be blogs.example.com, that also reside on the server, then that total could reach a thousand or more. That matters because the Internet's spam vigilantes, the ones who create blacklists used to determine which messages to block, do not list domain names because those can easily be forged. They list IP addresses. The IP addresses can't easily be forged. Bluehost reacts quickly when it finds spammers on its systems. Under its terms of service, it can immediately terminate the account of a spammer, and it does. But the mail from every other domain that shares the IP address will continue to be blocked for some period. I think it's 72 hours for most blacklists. There are two ways to avoid that particular problem. First, ask the hosting service to provide an IP address that only you use. Most hosts can do this, and the cost is typically $25 to $100 a year. Bluehost charges $30. The second possibility would be to use your ISP's SMTP server, that's the device that sends mail, use it to send your mail, and use your own domain to receive mail. This is a trivial process with some email applications. I do it with the bat, and I presume it can be done with other email client applications. 
The problem there, though, is that if the ISP suddenly becomes blocked because its users are sending spam, you're out of luck there, too. Donna once again. Sorting through the headers shows that it goes through Comcast at some point. I didn't spend more than five minutes trying to sort this problem out, but I'm assuming Comcast is his host. I do know that it's his ISP. Or his host rents space from Comcast for email traffic. Well, many ISPs do provide space for website hosting, sometimes for free and sometimes for a fee. I have set up websites on systems such as these, and I feel that the free services are overpriced. Donna once again. While I think having your own domain is a good idea, but whether you have one or not is not going to keep me up at night, my uncle's experience was that having one doesn't guarantee you'll get all of your email. Until one of my messages bounced, he had no idea this was happening. Well, the sender should always be advised when a message is not delivered. Note my use of the weasel word there should. In practice, it doesn't happen, because some ISPs simply delete messages without telling anybody. I keep hoping that that's a lawsuit waiting to happen, but it keeps waiting. Another participant, Deborah, said that even when she gets her own domain, she'll still post her ISP's address to public lists. I hate spam that much, she said, and I don't want it coming to my domain address if I can help it. Well, I wonder if it wouldn't be better simply to control the spam. Web hosting companies provide a variety of defenses. Bluehost, for example, will enable PostAny, which is a Google product, for $12 per year per address. I tried that for a while. Both my wife and I found it to be far more trouble than it was worth. So I went back to my old method. I re-enabled the antique spam assassin, which rates messages on a variety of criteria, then marks as spam any message that exceeds a rating that I set. This means that inbound spam suspects are marked, and they go directly to a spam folder. I could simply delete the suspects, but occasionally a message that I want to see will be classified as spam. And occasionally I do go through the refuse to write an article for TechBiter. I also use a second line of defense, a plugin for the bat called Anti-Spam Sniper. The plugin catches the occasional spam that gets past Spam Assassin. Norton Internet Security also has a spam identification routine. I leave it enabled, but don't pay much attention to it. In the few hours before I wrote my response, I had received just 37 spams. Most of them came to bill.blin at techbiter.com. That's a high-profile address that I advertise freely on TechBiter. And right here, I just said it, so any spammer who happens to be listening can feel free to copy it down and use it. I probably won't see your message. Of those 37 messages, Spam Assassin identified all but 12. I set Spam Assassin's threshold very high. I do that because I prefer to let in anything that might possibly be legitimate. Norton and Anti-Spam Sniper both identified 11 of the remaining 12 messages, and Anti-Spam Sniper alone identified the 12th. Not one actual spam reached my inbox, and not one genuine message was marked as spam. Deborah commented, I suppose one solution would be formatting my email address on the list with the at sign spelled out, well, no, actually, that wouldn't work. Spammers know that trick. Deborah says she has another address with a big ISP. The address which has its spam filters disabled occasionally loses some incoming messages. This has happened, she says, perhaps five times in the past year. She has to wonder just how many times it's happened that she doesn't know about. The big ISP, of course, claims complete ignorance. As will any ISP. And by the way, if you want to find out which domains share your domain's IP address, 
I'll list several resources on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, some people make a difference, and Michael Hart is likely to be remembered as someone who did make a difference. During the Vietnam War, he served in Korea. The 64-year-old resident of Urbana, Illinois, native of Tacoma, Washington, invented the electronic book. He did that in 1971. Hart had received a free copy of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, and that led to his founding of Project Gutenberg, which currently offers 36,000 free e-books to download. You can read them on your PC, your Kindle, your Android, any iOS device, and lots of other portable devices. And I mean free as in free speech, but also as in free beer. This week, Hart died. According to the Project Gutenberg website, a lifetime intellectual, Hart was inspired by his parents, both professors at the University of Illinois, to seek truth and question authority. One of his favorite recent quotes credited to George Bernard Shaw is characteristic of his approach to life. Reasonable people adapt themselves to the world. Unreasonable people attempt to adapt the world to themselves. All progress, therefore, depends on unreasonable people. Michael Hart prided himself on being unreasonable, and only in the later years of his life did he mellow sufficiently to occasionally refrain from a debate. Yet the Project Gutenberg website continued his passion for life and all things in it never abated. Dr. Gregory Newby quoted something Hart wrote earlier this year, and something that summarizes his goals and his legacy. One thing about e-books that most people haven't thought much is that e-books are the very first thing that we're all able to have as much as we want other than air. Think about that for a moment, and you realize we're in the right job. The words of Michael Hart. Here's a classy way for the chairman of the board to fire the CEO. Do it by phone. I suppose that the chairman of Yahoo could have just sent an email or an IM or done it in 140 characters on Twitter, 62-year-old Carol Bartz, the former CEO of Autodesk, the CAD company, had more than a year on her contract with Yahoo when she received the phone call. Yahoo's board of destroyers, uh, I'm sorry, Yahoo's board of directors turned down an offer by Microsoft to buy the company several years ago. At the time, the company was slipping, and Microsoft was offering a lot more than Yahoo was worth. Now, there are rumors that the board would be willing to sell what's left of the company, but it doesn't look like anybody's really interested. Bartz, who had been CEO for two years, will be succeeded by Chief Financial Officer Tim Morse, while the board looks for somebody foolish enough to accept the job as Yahoo continues its rush toward irrelevancy. Two days after I ordered a 3-terabyte Seagate GoFlex disk drive for backing up files from home, price with shipping $135, Seagate has announced the availability of 4TB drives, $250 MSRP. Given the price difference, $115 for that 4th terabyte, I still would have selected the 3TB drive, but this is just another example of how quickly storage is expanding and becoming less expensive. At 4TB, this is the highest capacity individual hard drive in the industry. Seagate says the drive has a smaller footprint and better reflects the aesthetic of today's modern offices. If you want to buy one today, you'll have to buy it from Seagate, but several other online retailers will have it in stock by the end of the month. 
For Apple users, a Mac version will include both FireWire 800 and USB 2. Note future tense. Windows users will enjoy much faster USB 3 if their computers support the new USB standard. And in case you wondered, Seagate says 4 terabytes is enough to hold 1.2 million photos, 1,000 full-length movies, or more than 60,000 hours of music. Because TechBiter Worldwide is a program about technology, any commentary on the terrorist attacks of 10 years ago seems out of place. But not to acknowledge those events seems equally out of place. So what I have to offer on the subject is merely my own personal commentary. Ten years ago, on September 11th, I was in Boston and just about to start my 9 a.m. Tuesday program as a speaker at Corel World. Someone who came into the room mentioned that the World Trade Center had been bombed. Not again, I said, and went on with the presentation. Forty-five minutes later, we learned that it wasn't a bomb, but an airplane. Two of them, and one in Washington, and a crash in Pennsylvania. Stunned, we watched the TV monitors that were brought in. My wife called. My older daughter called. Is this the beginning of World War III, she asked. I said it wasn't, but it turns out she was more on the mark than I was. It just wasn't what I had envisioned as World War III. What we have is more like the never-ending wars in 1984. We've always been at war with East Asia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. And apparently, we always will be. Ten years ago, Corel World continued because nobody could leave. But because nobody could arrive either, presenters who were due to arrive for programs on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday couldn't. Those of us who were there pitched in and picked up the topics we were most familiar with. On Saturday morning, my flight was one of the first to depart Logan Airport. For those who were directly affected, everything changed that day. For most of the rest of us, the day is now mainly a distant memory. That's the way we humans work. Something terrible happens, we grieve, eventually we move on. But we never entirely forget, either. PBS created in 1999 a 14-hour program narrated by David Ogden Stiers that explains the past and present of New York City. If you are a Netflix subscriber, or if your library has access to this series, I highly recommend watching it. Later, an additional two-hour program was added to discuss the design and building of the World Trade Center and its destruction in 2001, so watching all parts of the program will consume 16 hours. The attack was instrumental in killing PC Expo, a large computer program that annually filled at Javits Convention Center in New York City, but the event was already showing signs of stress from the bursting of the Internet bubble, or the dot-com bubble, in 2000. The 2001 show in June was considerably smaller than in previous years, and the 2002 show, the last, was a shadow of its former self. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.